So I want to extend you a happy Mother's Day as well. I want to give you just a little bit of a warning, though. When you go to grab a rose, those are real roses. And roses have thorns, so they're, they're real thorns. But it, isn't, that, isn't that just a perfect picture of, of a mother, though? A rose surrounded by thorns, you know? Is that, is that, is that okay to say? Um, we are starting a brand new sermon series today, but moms, we're gonna, you're doing a great job. So we're gonna, like, today's not gonna be about moms, but it is gonna be something about your mom has always cared about. It's gonna be f- friends. Your parents always, like for every child, they want you to have good friends. And we all know that sometimes that doesn't all work out. And, may, and maybe, um, maybe you think back and you think about being raised and your parents talking to you about friends. And mo- maybe most of the conversations were more on the negative side of things. Kind of like, well, if your friends jumped off a cliff, would you? It's like, well, I don't know. Do I, you know, am I skydiving? Do I have a, you know, you know what's, the, what's the context, mom? You know, th- that kind of thing. And, and it proves out to be true. We all, we all had that one friend when we were younger, didn't we? That, or maybe you were the friend. I don't it's, it's all good. No perfect, people, no perfect people allowed, right? But we always had that one friend that somehow we were always left holding the bag. You know, for some reason we would get in trouble, you know, because of this other friend, their ideas. Now, this is not so much childhood as, as college, but I may or may not have knowledge of certain events that happened during my time in, in college, certain, you know, um, I think they would call them pranks uh, these, these days that may or may not really get me in trouble if I were to divulge those, that information. Um, and so maybe we got caught every once in a while and it was never, it was almost, um, uh, much of the time it wasn't my idea. So, so, so there's that. So it's absolutely true. It's a thing that we need to consider wisely. Our friendships have a great deal of influence over our lives, how we experience life, what we do in life. And, uh, but that's not the only thing that matters when it comes to having friends. So maybe your experience is kind of on the more negative side. Maybe, maybe you've had really positive experience with friendships despite not really being taught how to be friends with other people. Or maybe you've just kind of gotten lucky in life. But it's not just about what we get as a benefit for curating the presence of others in our life. That, that's not the only thing that friendship is about. So, I mean, we can strategically place certain types of people in our lives for our own personal enrichment, uh, but real friendship involves a mutual relationship in which life becomes more joyful and even more complete by sharing a common foundation with another person. A shared foundation is kind of how friendships start to, to begin with. Uh, my, in fact, my name, what most of you call me, it is not even my actual name. It all started because of a friend I had on the basketball team in college. And I was not ever Rob before that. I've always been Robert my entire life. Renee has never known me as Robert, though. And that, that's crazy to me. That's my whole, you know, the best part of my life. I've only been Rob um, because I've been with her. And she's a great mother. And I'm going to stop there because uh, that was not planned at all. And it's probably pretty obvious. But I, I started, you know, playing on the basketball court, hanging out with other people. I started becoming called Rob. And so for me, that was kind of a place in which that was a foundation for friendship. Whether it's basketball or it's been volleyball or it's coaching sports for my son, I've met all kinds of amazing people have gotten best friends from that shared common foundation. It's happened from, from work as well. One of my best friends who's in San Antonio, um, whose voice you actually just heard, he and I met because we went to grad school together, but we actually became the best of friends because we were deep in the trenches of ministry together and worked together at the, at the same church. And my wife and Renee and I, we're best friends. Um, it's, there's nothing quite like 
when you meet somebody, and this is on a basketball court, if it helps to have a little bit of context. And, and some, of you, some of you know this already, what I'm about to say, but there's nothing sweeter than just hearing those, those two words, you suck. You know, so that's how, that's how we started. A little trash talk is how, how we started things off. And yet, you know, we're coming up on 19 years of marriage, and, uh, and it's, been, it's been amazing uh, that, uh, that our flame of passion was ignited by, by those, those two simple words. And there's been plenty of other friends that I've met along the way and so many other different contexts. I mean, so many of you that I call friends as I've been here at Velocity for a good long time at this point. Um, but one of the things that I know to be true is that friendship is becoming, if it really has already become a lost art in our culture. There are deeper and more important foundations for friendship beyond initial interests and attractions. And, and the, the more those deeper foundations that exist are eroded in our culture, the worse we become at ma- being and maintaining friendships. We are more connected than we have ever been at any one point in history. Uh, 97% of Americans own a cell phone of some kind. 85% of us own a smartphone, which has not made us more intelligent. 82% of the population in the United States have a social networking prof- profile. So we're, we're able to curate our friendships really well. I mean, we can kind of get everything down into a foundation of interest. We can even polarize ourselves from other people that have other interests we don't want to have in our lives. And yet with all the technology and media at our disposal to develop and maintain frish- friendships, we are lonelier than ever. You might even have friends, even best friends, but still find it a challenge to find time to spend time with them. You know, we're always so busy and we've got so many other things going on. We aren't really, but we still are bad at communicating with our friends and still deal with loneliness. And if so, you aren't alone. A recent report just came out a few years ago, a few, few years ago, a few uh, days ago, actually. And I just want to let you know, we had this sermon series planned for a good long time. It's not a response to what just came out. The Surgeon General just released a report about lo- the loneliness epidemic in our culture. So even if, even if you don't care what I have to say this morning, you can go, go read that and kind of have a, an appreciation for what's happening in our culture today. Research shows that Americans who have become less engaged, check this out, with worship houses, oh man, here's another preacher telling me I should be in church, Community organizations and even their own family members in recent decades have steadily reported an increase in feelings of loneliness. People called their friendship groups during the pandemic and reduced time spent with those friends. The Surgeon General's report finds Americans spend about 20 minutes a day in person with friends in 2020, down from 60 minutes daily nearly two decades earlier. What were we doing different? I wonder. Loneliness epidemic is hitting young people ages 15 to 24 especially hard. This age group reported a 70% drop in time spent with friends during the same period. So there's that. There's also the fact that loneliness and isolation is literally killing us. Loneliness increases the risk of premature death by nearly 30% with the report, revealing that those with poor social relationships have a greater risk of stroke and heart disease. Isolation also elevates a person's likelihood for experiencing depression, anxiety, and dementia, according to the research. And here's one of the most major, important, contributing factors. You ready for this? Oh, I forgot my prop. I left it back on the soundboard because I'll leave it back there every, every Sunday because I don't want to be distracted by it. It's, it's, our, it's our phones. It's our phones and it's our social media. That's one of the most major issues that we have. 
There is no substitute, and this is, this is from the Surgeon General's report. This is, there is no substitute for in-person interaction. As we shift more and more to technology and having that as part of, there's so many conveniences, it's great. There's so many different ways we can be connected with people and use it to our advantage, but we just aren't doing that. We just naturally are not using it in healthy ways. And it's showing in how we interact with each other or more specifically how we don't interact with each other. Simply put, we're committing ourselves to friendship less and less and it is making us miserable. This is especially poignant when you take into account how this is impacting our children and teens. Not only are they more depressed and anxious than ever, if we as adults are not modeling healthy relationships and friendships for them, how are they ever going to learn? They're not. And what they're going to do is they're going to continue to turn to polarizing outside groups of friends who are teaching them the prescription for their loneliness is found in substances, it's found in gender and sexuality, and increasing focus on self through comparison with others. There's a solution. There's a solution to the loneliness epidemic. It's not growing a larger circle of acquaintances. It's not having a better social media platform. It's not more self-help books or motivational YouTube videos. The solution to our loneliness epidemic is actually ancient wisdom. And we're going to be looking at that in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 this morning. All the social experimentation that our culture is doing right now rejects this ancient wisdom, but still wants the benefits of it. And this is why we can have hundreds of friends and still feel utterly alone and isolated. And that ancient wisdom is that we are better together. Well, well duh. <laughs> yeah, you might think that, but guess what? Most of us aren't doing it. So we might have that reaction, well, duh, but we're still not doing the thing that we would say that we know that we should be doing. Plenty of people have friends and still feel lonely. We're better together when we're physically present and sustained by a, found, a faithful foundation. This is nothing new, but this is ancient wisdom that we find continually throughout the text of Scripture. And this is the conception of friendship that we must embrace and employ if we're going to be able to enjoy the relationship for which we're made. So we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, over the course of this, in this uh, sermon series over the next few weeks. Today we're specifically looking at just verses 7 and 8, but I, I just want to read the entire context for us, because this is really important, especially if, if you've never read this before. So this is Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. This is a theme in Ecclesiastes, what, things that are meaningless. There was a man all alone. By the way, we've got a breaker that's tripping, and it, that might be distracting to you. It's just, uh, it's, you know, very, it's just letting you know, hey, pay attention to this. It's capturing your information. Uh, it, you're you're in, not capturing your information. That's not what it's doing. What's the word I'm looking for? Your attention, but there's another word I was trying to say that I missed. I'll figure it out later. There's a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, no one, can, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. 
We're going to throw Ecclesiastes 4, 7, and 8 back up on the screen for us this morning because this is the one that we're going to uh, focus on uh, today. And meaningless is a really poignant way to think about this because I'll just, I'll just let you know, and maybe this seems like it would undercut everything that we're going to talk about. You can survive without friends. Absolutely. You, you can survive. Now, you're, you're uh, not going to survive as long, right? YOLO, though, right? Am I using that right? I'm not, I'm not sure how that works. Um, you're going to be miserable and lonely and isolated, but you, you can survive. So there's not like a biological need for friendship. You can disregard this if meaningfulness in life is not a goal for you. But I'm pretty sure most of us want to li- live in a meaningful way in our lives. And this ob- is observational wisdom passed down for thousands of years. If I have no one to share the things I have worked for and towards, I will not be content and I will deprive myself of joy. So this is what we're saying. If we don't put time and effort into friendships, we're saying, I, I, want, I, I don't want to be content and I want to be deprived of joy. Well, you know, you read this, it's like, well, what if I don't have a son? What if I don't have a brother? Well, the point here is not the specifics in the way in which you are related to the other person, but in the way that you relate to them. We've talked about this before, but one of the, the first crises of man that we find in Genesis is that man should not be alone. So, so God kind of identifies this. He, he creates us in such a way that we are built for community. We are made for friendship. And a lot of times we, we think about this in terms of, of marriage. We look to another person to be able to fulfill everything that we need for us. But that's not even what the entire point is. Marriage is a great thing. We can have great friendships within that. But not everyone is married at all times. Not everybody can be married at all times. Um, but there's something that's even better that is hopefully part of your marriage. And that's friendship. And that extends beyond that type of romantic relationship. That, that means men are friends with men, women are friends with women. This is the way in which we are supposed to covenant together to treat one another based on something bigger than ourselves. And this is what our society gets wrong, is that we continually look for something else. We shift the foundation to things other than the way that we've been z- designed to experience friendship. And some of this comes from more philosophical ideas of friendship than theological. And I want to I call that out because this is really important. Some of the ways that we, talk, we think about friendship and we talk about friendship in our culture is based more on Aristotle than it is on biblical theology. Uh, there, there's a great essay in a book about the differences between Paul and, and, and philosophy, Paul who writes much of the New Testament. Um, and there's one um, essay called Paul and Aristotle on Friendship. And, and the author just does a great job of comparing, comparing, comparing and contrasting what's going on here and how this, this affects us. So just, I just want to give a really quick run through. So the philosophical idea of friendship that we have from Aristotle is that our friendships are basically based on three different care, categories. We have virtue. So because we love ourselves and somebody else who loves their, themselves well, we can see that there's a mutual benefit to us being in relationship with this other person. We like the same things. We're interested in the same things. We make ourselves feel better. You know, we laugh together. We experience joy. So that's, that's one way. So virtue. The other is utility. So you think you're work friends, right? I've, I've got this mutual benefit with someone because we can get and acquire the material possessions that we need and that we want. So we have that kind of friendship. And then there's pleasure, so the type of friends that we, you know, meet when we're playing volleyball or we have a hobby or we have extracurricular activity, that kind of thing. The key point is that God does not need to be a part of the equation in this for Aristotle because God is some sort of uh, concept that is separate and outside and other. 
in a way because God doesn't need any kind of interaction with us for God to be divine in a relationship. And here's where that leaves us, okay? These are natural friendships that we have. So Aristotle, is, it's not that he's inherently wrong with the observation that he's making. It, it makes, makes a ton of sense. Um, but those types of friendships tend to fade as the utility disappears, okay? Because life changes. Things, you know, we move away or we don't have the same job anymore, so now we're not friends anymore. We, you know, we're not doing the same hobby anymore because we get hurt or something like that and have to take some time off. Um, you know, there's different things that, 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 that come along where those types of friendships in, end up disappearing. The other thing that happens is that we lose energy for friendships. Like sometimes we just, I don't know, maybe we could just get tired of people or we just get busy, right? Because we have stuff going on. Stuff just happens to be like 40 hours of Netflix a week. But, you know, my schedule because I'm important, you know, that, that kind of thing. And so we have a limited capacity and ability to maintain friendship. And it's easy to deprioritize it as, because we have no intrinsic biological need for it. Like you're not going to immediately drop dead if you don't spend any time with your friends. However, there is a deep spiritual need. We can survive without it, but life is greatly diminished and shortened. And it's through friendship in which God reveals what makes life a joy. So there's a very different way in theologically than philosophically the way that we think about friendship. Uh, philosoph Aristotle's definition doesn't quite get us all the way there. Let me, let me just read to you this description of friendship from C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves. He says, the friendship is not a reward for our discrimination and good taste in finding one another out. So it's not like Aristotle talks about it. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each the beauties of all the others. They are no greater than the beauties of a thousand other men. By friendship, God opens our eyes to them. They are, like all beauties, derived from him, and then, in a good friendship, increased by him through the friendship itself, so that it is his instrument for creating as well as revealing. He, uh, C.S. Lewis goes on to even uh, make the connection between friendship and art. It's kind of like art. It's, can you exist in life without art? Sure. But, but think about like, never enjoying a sunset ever again. I'm more of a sunset guy than a sunrise guy. But think about never, never seeing the mountains you know, as, you, as you drive up, or never going to the beach, or never experience any, anything that's, that, that gives you that sense of awe and wonder and, and joy and beauty in life. That's what life is like without friendship. And so here's how Paul differs from this as he teaches uh, a model of friendship. And, um, and, and we're going to... We're not going to go through the entire book of Philippians. I'm only going to read one verse. But you could read the entire letter of Philippians from Paul and, and see kind of how he thinks about this and how it's deeper and more meaningful than the way that most of our culture approaches, approaches friendship. The, the church in Philippi and Paul have an interesting relationship because Paul started this church. And um, he, he is the one who was in relationship with them, helped them gather together. And when he writes Philippians, he is not with them anymore. He's, he's in prison and he's writing, writing to them. And the things that he's writing to them about are false teaching and unity and all of these kinds of things. And so you can tell, I mean, there, there's an interesting relationship here because there are things going on in the Philippian church that, that are not the way that Paul would want them to be. And it could be that, wow, there's no more virtue and utility and pleasure here in this relationship. Paul could have just given up on them and been done, wiped his hands with them. But instead, he writes them this letter. 
And there are two things that he brings out. There's two specific Greek words that he uses. Koinonia is one of them, fellowship, partnership. Phronesis is the other one, like-mindedness, understanding, and care. But there's two traits that Paul brings up. He says, we should be, have affectionate concern for one another, and we should have sacrificial service for one another's joy. And we could say, oh, well, that sounds a lot like Aristotle. Virtue, utility, pleasure, sure, that's great. The second trait that he brings up, in which Paul talks about our friendship uh, with, in our relationship with together uh, because of who God is and because of what Jesus has done, is that we endure suffering on the behalf of the other. Now, that's interesting. That's a little bit of a twist than what Aristotle would say, enduring suffering on the behalf of the other. Well, how in the world do we have capacity to suffer on the behalf of other people in our friendships? We have the capacity to suffer because God is supposed to be the foundation upon which and the basis upon which we share in that friendship. So it's not just me and the other person. It's not just what I can get out of the other person. It's not just this give-and-take transactional thing that I have with the other person. But instead, I'm sustained and fulfilled by God and the completeness and abundance that he provides for me with my friendship with him. And this is the distinct, this is the distinct difference. Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Same love, one in spirit and one mind. Well, how does that happen? It's because as much as I have this friend who's here and we have this great relationship, the best way for us to be connected is because we have this relationship with God. So we have the horizontal relationship. That, that's the only thing Aristotle is concerned with. The difference between what Scripture has to say about friendship is that God wants to be friends with us too. And he's the one who sustains our ability to have our friendships together. The basis within Christian friendship then is not um, because we individually love ourselves so much that we just happen to allow each other into our lives. But it's the presence of God who energizes our willingness and activity, who provides what is needed to give to the other and ensures that there's going to be benefit to the relationship. In other words, friendship is not transactional. We've all had lopsided friendships in our life before in which we feel like we're pulling more weight. We're doing more of the work. We're always the one calling the person. We're always the one texting the person. We're always the one, you know, um, making sure that we, we get out. Uh, get something out of that person, or, or we've just had friendships when we're just not getting enough from the other person. But if we aren't trying to find our identity in someone else, which is, which is most of the problem with Aristotle's approach, and instead are fulfilled in Jesus already, we can be better friends, and we can have deeper and more meaningful relationships. The friendship is all the more deeper and sweeter and enjoyable when both friends are fulfilled in Jesus. And this is how we're better together. That our friendships are not contingent upon one another's ability to maintain and provide for the other. Well, I don't know if I want to be your friend because you're not making me happy. Okay. But on God's infinite divine provision for each and for each together. So here's, here's what I would say is a, is a biblical definition of friendship. Friendship is choosing to show someone how valuable they are by sacrificing and caring for them the way that Jesus does. And this is just the common way in which we're called to relate to everyone. I mean, th this is not just about, well, only the people I consider my friends, that's how I, that I treat them. This is just how Jesus treats everyone. Recognize the worth of others, and this becomes the catalyst and opportunity for friendship to develop. This is just how we approach other people. 
I mean, a lot of times we probably miss out on the opportunity for deep and meaningful friendships just because we don't put this into practice because we're too busy. We've got other things to do. We're on our phones too much. So are we saying then as disciples of Jesus, we're only to be friends with other Christians? By no means. The friendships that we are designed for, however, and create the opportunity for the greatest depth and meaningfulness are ones that are sustained by God's grace rather than ourselves. Because we all have limited capacity. Your best friend, for example, may not be a Christian, but it's important we recognize that there's a vital missing component for the capacity of love brought to our friendship without God's divine and infinite source. Jesus calls this out in his conversation with his disciples, and one of his closest friends, John, writes about this in John chapter 15. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Well, how do we have the capacity for that? You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. And this is the communal dynamic that God wants us to have with each other. Wants us to have with him and one another. The basis on which we derive joy and friendship is not contingent upon the transactions. You know, oh, he did this for me this time. I'll do this for him this time. Um, But the friendships that we enjoy with God that fills us to overflow in which we share with our friends. And so we're not relying other people to supply us with happiness. We're not relying on other people to supply us with joy and meaningfulness in life because God has already fulfilled that. Instead, we are sharing together the abundance of enjoyment of life that God has richly blessed us with. And that's why the sweetest friendships we can achieve on earth as it is in heaven are those that are based on the deepest and most meaningful foundation of all, which is that we are better together in friendship because we're made whole with God. And we aren't putting that on somebody else to do for us because God's already done that through Jesus. So Jonathan Holmes says in the company keep, we keep, and I think this is a great way to just kind of encapsulate what we've talked about this morning and this wisdom from Ecclesiastes chapter four. When we embody biblical friendship, we bear Jesus' image, his character, his priorities, and his glory. No longer will our friends be situated merely around common circumstances or interests, but will instead become an embodied commitment to live out the image of God together in every area of our life. This is, this is just the foundation. This is the base in which deep, meaningful friendships can exist. So here's, here's, um, here's a challenge for us. On your smartphone, especially if you have social media, you can find out how much time you spend on a certain app. We've talked about this a little bit before. So my encouragement to you is, <clears throat> whatever you spend, and maybe, maybe it's not social media, maybe you just watch too much TV, you know, you're always on Netflix, wh- whatever the thing is. Find out what you spend the most time on and recognize um, that this is, this is sucking the life out of your friendships. All right, so your digital friendships your friend count on whatever social media platform you're on. Um, are not real friendships. That might be challenging to hear. Those are great connections. It's a great tool for us to use to stay in contact with, with one another. I'm not saying that you aren't actually friends with that person in real life at some point and somewhere. 
But, but if that's what we're relying on, um, we're going to feel lonely and empty and isolated. I mean, that's just because we're just comparing ourselves with other people. We're not actually engaging in relationship with the person. So my challenge to you is, is to look and see how much time you spend on that kind of stuff and, and pick a week, and this may take some planning, so maybe you can't do it this week, and I, I get this, that, um, but pick a week in which you turn that around and, and you spend that time with people in person. So I'm, I'm talking about look at how much time you spend on social media for the week and say, I'm going to commit to actually being with my friends and, and making my schedule work for that and actually spend real in-person, face-to-face, real-life time with them. Now, look, maybe your best, like one of your best friends is in San Antonio, Texas, like me. Like if you want to use technology to talk with them on the phone or FaceTime with them, absolutely, that, that 100% counts. I totally, totally get that. But maybe it looks like um, scheduling a time to fly out to be with them finally because you talked about it forever, but you've never done it. And, and you know that you need to be together with that person. I just, I just want to encourage you to, to think about this in such a way that if, if I'm not spending personal, physical presence time with this person and connecting on the foundation of relationship that God has given us through Jesus, then I'm missing out, and this other person is missing out as well. So that's my encouragement uh, for us today, is for us to actually put these things into practice and think about how they're impacting our daily, our daily lives. You know, there's, uh, there's a reason why we come together in person as a church body. You know, every week we celebrate communion together, and we do this because we need to remember the foundation upon which God establishes his friendship with us. And that is he lays down his life so that we can be in relationship with God. And so we take communion together. We take a little bit of bread, a little bit of juice to remind us of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. And we've got a few tables around, around the room if you're here with us in, in person and that we'd love for you to uh, partake in this time together. And I would just ask that you consider um, the type of relationship that this establishes between us and God and how this is meant to be shared communally with one another uh, in, our, in our lives as we share in this time of communion together. Let me pray for us as we do that. God, thank you for uh, this time that we have to spend together. God, thank you for uh, the way in which you establish relationship with us. And uh, God, help us to see that as a model and how we're supposed to engage with and treat other people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.